0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software, repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Awesome. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, the answers in real time, about data you're seeing with your grow and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this amazing industry. We thank everyone in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroyo, Though you are always welcome to book a demo. My name is Mandy and I'll be your moderator today. Feel free to type your questions in the chat at any time. Uh, If your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Anyone who asks our question live for the first time today will get an Arroyo hat. This is limited to U.S. residents only, and one hat per household. Plus, we're raffling off one of our limited edition Arroya T-shirts. To enter, everyone on today's live broadcast should post your email address in the chat. Seth and Jason, how are you today?
1: Good, pretty good. Mandy, how about yourself?
0: Oh, awesome! Still kind of like um, uh, recuperating from the East Coast trip. Uh, I was like so uh, it was just like on the go the entire time, but we met. Messed- cultivators and um yeah we're gonna have some amazing case studies to come out of all of that so yeah
2: too fun great work yeah. Yeah. i know i enjoy those case study trips so i hope you did as well
0: oh my gosh it was so fun it was my first time to the east coast and um yeah they're growing some really good stuff out there so it was awesome are you guys doing anything fun for uh 710, uh for anything uh this sunday
2: i
1: didn't have anything planned just hang out with my family yeah, probably get outside. It's uh, it's really nice out right now.
0: <laughs> it sounds amazing up there. You guys are always having oh, yeah. the best weather. Um, well, cool. Um, I guess without further ado, are you guys ready to go ahead and jump into our first question?
2: Sure. Let's yep.
1: get started. Let's go for it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we got a couple questions this week on Instagram. So we'll go ahead and get to those. Los Green Ghosts <laughs> wants to know. Do mold system? do mold sensors exist?
2: Uh, yeah, I think there's some air quality sensors out there that can detect mold spores and typically I think they're more expensive than we see most clients invest in they just try to be proactive in preventing molds and mildews. Uh, that being said, if you can catch mold spores, then obviously you can help be proactive in reducing how much mold is going to grow even before it begins.
1: Yeah, I mean, the technology's out there, but we also know there's certain parameters we want to avoid for mold growth. So although those would be cool, we've also found there's not really an advantage to riding the line on if I might have mold when it comes to VPD. So the better end is to try to play it safe as far as VPD goes. And if you have the money to invest in a mold sensor, probably invest that more into dehumidification or HVAC equipment to get your environment more in line with the standards that we like to see.
0: Um, follow-up question. Does a or meter group offer anything like that? Do we have anything that helps with mold?
2: Uh, just use your VPD. And I mean, that's going to be the best thing that we have. So you're at most 14 looking at climate parameters, uh, always shoot for the representative VPD that you want to so pick a temperature that you, you want to be growing in and then get your humidity right so that you can hit those VPD targets.
1: Yeah, and just, uh, you know, I guess one of the biggest things that Array brings to the table is that 24-7 data logging so you can see if you've had some sort of HVAC failure or a big need to adjust, let's say, for, uh, you know, lights off, humidity swings, things like that, that, you know. I, I know for me, without data logging, that was really tough overnight if all I did was leave a sensor that gave me a high and a low and I didn't know when I needed to be changing my settings.
2: Yeah, and Seth nailed it there is take a look at your graphs to see when you do run into high humidity issues. It's very, very typical that we see it that lights off like Seth was talking about. So there's good ways to combat that effectively, you know, think about starting your dehumes maybe 30 minutes before your lights go off. And, you know, rather than having a spike, you'll just have a dip and a, a bump, uh, which is, is much better type of environment than, than having something real high.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, eventually once you kind of, you've got data logging on your environment. You can start to see, okay, what, what is a hundred percent capacity as far as plant matter goes for us in this room? You know, once we start going above a certain amount, okay, that's as much as we can shove in there without, you know, having too high a humidity at any given point. Or, hey, for us, it's really important to run that 10 degree overnight differential. Or for some people, let's say if that's really where you want to be, you're really trying to get some purple out. Well, if your system can't handle it, you'd rather have not quite as purple a weed and not have to pick through mold if you know not running that big of a diff was the difference and that's where we can really help you fine-tune it
0: awesome thank you guys for that um Green gringos uh, had a follow-up question what's the biggest challenge switching from soil to cocoa
2: i mean you're going to run into a number of challenges uh, obviously when we're looking at some of the substrate differences we like to look at cation exchange capacity so how much synthetic nutrients are you applying to that substrate obviously in, in cocoa it's fairly inert a lot of the cocoa we see you know be about 1.0 EC um, just from the factory after we hydrate it up you know in a, in a soil it's going to completely depend on the amendments and, and how far they have uh, broken down into soluble nutrients so that would be the first one. And then, you know, think about the matrix potential differences. So with cocoa, you know, obviously you've got different pith uh, and chunk um, variations, depending on manufacturer and, and which line you get from them. And that's actually a pretty small gradient on the, the different matrix potentials within cocoa. When we're looking at soil, clay, sand, um, those are all, I mean, like, I guess look up the, the the soil chart there you know there's a good triangle on the internet that talks about the different compositions in the corners and and the blends of that and so you can have a massive variation in matrix potentials and what how we've done some of the traditional agriculture stuff is we'll have people send in samples and we'll we'll run um, dry down curves looking at water content versus matrix potential for different parts of their fields there can be substantial differences that's one of the wonderful things about cocoa is and wool for that matter is they're mostly predictable. So we don't necessarily need to be focused on those matrix potential curves and we can be just using, um, water content in that substrate.
1: Yeah. And you know, I honestly, Jason, you went pretty deep there. Deeper as I was expecting for (laughs) our audience, but one thing I do want to clarify, if you bought it in a bag at a store and you put it in a pot, it's not soil, it's a soilless mix. And if you actually look at most of those, they're going to be well over 50% cocoa coir or peat moss. Generally speaking, um, soil is made of mineral, is mineral based has horizons and organic layers and takes time to develop typically in most, you know, even outside of cannabis and horticulture situations, we're not having to deal with, you know, sand, silt and loam. We're not having to deal with, uh, you know, different particle sizes of soil. The CEC, the cation exchange capacity is where it might come in differently because as Jason said, you're in a traditional, like, let's say living soil mix. That a lot of people like to use. You're relying on the, these amendments to degrade over time and become plant available. So the biggest part of your switch is probably going to be getting used to mixing up that much fertilizer in your water and probably just going like, Oh man, you know, I'm used to putting the money into the soil in the beginning. And now I'm watching myself dump it in every day. Yeah.
2: I good practice would be monitor your, your substrates every day in your environments. So the cocoa is going to be slightly more reactive than, uh, typical soils. So monitor those dry backs, monitor uh, the performance of your EC. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Don't sweat it. It's not, it's it not a big deal. To measuring and keeping yep.
0: tabs on, on all of your substrates and everything. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off guys. Oh,
1: no worries. <laughs> Nature of digital connections, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that no one should worry about it. It's not that hard. I myself go back and forth between rock, wool, cocoa, and soil out in my garden all the time, even using these sensors. And it's not, it's really nothing to be scared of. I I think sometimes probably the worst thing for people trying something new is having too much information and getting stuck on the little details going like, oh no, that line looks crazy. And like, sometimes it's best actually to review things after a few days, if you've already know you're, if you already know you're capable of growing a healthy plant, then yeah, take your readings and just don't worry about it. Do what you do. Follow some directions as far as, you know, fertilizer mixing goes and you'll be just fine.
0: Awesome. Thank you guys for that one. Um, So yeah, we are going to move on to another question we got from a different Instagram user. Um, Drunk Nomad 40 ounce wrote in to ask, and please let me know if this makes sense to you you guys, but this is how it came in. Three week stretch when flipping to flower. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm.
1: Cool. Your plant stretched for three weeks after you flipped a flower. That's a, yeah, that's a pretty standard, uh, place to start when figuring that out. But three weeks is just kind of a rule of thumb based on, uh, you know, a lot of things come in between two and a half and four weeks. So what we like to do is say, start at three weeks, but more importantly, start measuring your plant, you know, through that first three weeks. And if you're still seeing appreciable stretch, then we're going to stay in generative a little bit longer till we've got that stretch finished and then we can flip into bulking
2: yeah and so you know one of the points of or one of the goals of applying generative irrigation uh, generative crop steering towards the beginning of flowers is to control how much stretch you're getting so by documenting your plant heights going into flower and uh, their plant heights throughout those first three to five weeks uh, you can have some predictability and and manage the plant size a little bit better depending on their strain uh,
0: behavior perfect thank you guys for that um yeah we we're getting some more questions rolling in um so yeah we're just going to keep going down our list space dog select wants to know what do you do when you can't get accurate readings with the spot checker
2: uh try again um make sure you're following the directions so we provide a installation tool that specifies the right height so that we're not down below the water table and and we can get accurate measurements sometimes we'll run into things like you know if you've got a pocket in the substrate uh, if you've already used that those installation holes before for a spot measurement those can affect the readings and then obviously making sure that that sensor is flush in the substrate those
1: are all just general practices that will help you get accurate readings each time Yeah. And, you know, I mean, once you've checked off the list of everything Jason just mentioned, uh, after that also kind of look at your media type, you know, when I get a box of cocoa blocks and I hydrate them, I can expect to see a few percent difference. And also, you know, if I plug into one block and then go over, plug into a different pot I see a 6% difference Mm -hmm. and I pick it up and go, oh, I don't think it's that different. Chances are my perception is not going to be quite that accurate. So I, I tend to refer to the sensor and go, well, I know I trust my senses and stuff, but I also know the limitations of that. I know that I can't tell you a one degree difference when I see a sensor make that change, and I'm just not that sensitive. So extending that to, you know, your growing practices and learning, you know, number one, to trust the sensors, uh, but also knowing how to troubleshoot them. So if you're, like I said, we're talking a small difference. You're just like, I don't think it's accurate. Well, it, it probably is. If we're talking a 20% difference and they both look and feel about the same okay, start looking for uh, possibly being inserted into a dry pocket or, you know, a common thing is uh, say with rock wool, pushing them in kind of hard and those sensors will sponge back out. We'll have just a tiny, tiny bit of space between the, the uh, sensor head and where it's actually going into the media. So even that little air gap, will throw it off a little bit.
2: And, you know, if anytime that you're using a media that you're not familiar with, you're You're switching brands or you just need to validate for yourself what those water contents are doing you can always um use uh, a standard block uh, of that new substrate and weigh it soak it out weigh it again and obviously one milliliter of water is going to weigh one gram and then you'll get an idea of what the the weight water content is and, and use your sensor as a reference to kind of calibrate yourself uh from from that start and one of the things that we always really try to reiterate is that the, the absolute specific water content that you're seeing at that point in time is not nearly as important as analyzing the dynamics uh, of your drybacks and uh, of your irrigation events in those plants
1: yeah that's a, that's a really important thing to keep in mind jason you know number one having those best practices so we're always watching what our media is doing you know batch to batch every time we hydrate we want to check that baseline Just to get an idea and know where we're at and not be surprised if we do have a little bit of variation and then, uh, just, yeah, consistency across the board's the best you can do.
0: Awesome, thank you guys for that. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to remind everyone who's joined us, um, don't be afraid to go ahead and post any questions you have about crop steering or cultivation in our chat. Um, We'll Go ahead and get to those. Um, But we had some more questions rolling from Instagram. So um, yeah, our next question comes from Dewan Gawan. I definitely did not say that right, but they wanna know, does stem through the clone cube create a callus on the wound and prevent infection? Let me know if you want me to say that again. Yeah. Okay. Does stim through the clone cube create a callus on the wound and prevent infection?
1: So typically when we're cloning, we don't want to stick that clone uh, all the way through the cube. Um, sometimes what I'll do is stick it through slightly. So I create an air hole at the bottom, then pull it back up in. But we do want the entirety of the cut to be in contact with our rooting media. That way we have water transfer directly into that xylem and we prevent having any kind of embolism in the plant. Yeah. So
2: obviously when we cut a clone, there's no roots and there's, um, a very small ability for the plant to uptake any water at that point. And that's where you want that continuity between the stem and the clone block.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's why, you know, uh, if we went back a long time in horticulture uh, you know, perlite was super popular for cloning. Uh, the, the gap between the particles and the perlite's too big. We can't usually get quite good enough contact with the roots. So we do see higher success rates with rock wool, uh, phenolic foam, and cocoa rooting cubes. But that's just because of that constant contact, and that's what we want. But on the flip side, you do want to make sure, I mean, if your rooting media is, let's say, sitting in puddles of water, inside your trays, you know, there are a few things we want to look out for to make sure it's properly aerated along with being hydrated. That way we avoid having, you know, an anaerobic zone that we're just sticking this plant in, trying to root and uh, you know, other things, cleanliness in the room. Make sure, you know, if you've got like, you might see a little trichoderma, that's okay. A lot of people inoculate trichoderma, but if you're seeing actual mold, you know, some little things to look out for is rooting gel that can, you know, grow different types of uh, fungi and bacteria. There's all kinds of little things that want to grow on there. So just keep your, your rooting media clean, keep your room clean and make sure you make nice clean cuts, sharp instruments go a long ways.
2: Sharp and clean instruments. As we've seen some of the, the hop late and issues spread across the country and, and decimate people's crops every once in a while it's the cleanliness of your cloning tools is the best thing you can do to prevent the spread of, of any of those diseases so any re- anytime that you're switching between moms make sure that you're you know fully cleaning those tools um, and if you've got multiple sets then just just leave some in some cleansing solution uh, and rotate out so they can stay as productive as possible while you're cloning
1: yeah and remember you know using a lot of alcohol is very good uh, if you're going to use bleach, absolutely. Don't be scared of the bleach smell <laughs> go well over 10, 20% when we're sanitizing tools and then, uh, you know, one of the biggest things for that callus formation is just remembering that when you take clones, we're not cutting to a uniform height, we're cutting to a uniform node. Those nodes are actually what produce the oxen that'll allow us to root. So anything, but a lot of the, sorry, excuse me, anything that you cut below that last node. Is more than likely just gonna rot inside that root cube. The roots are gonna pop out from where the node is and above it.
0: Awesome. Gosh, it's so much stuff to consider. But um, yeah, super important stuff. Um, great. Uh, we have another question from Dewan Gawan. Root in technique for clones into cubes and also cubes into slabs. You guys have any techniques for that?
2: Sure. Let's get started with uh and talk about rooting in for. For clones, uh, consistency is one of the, the best things that you can do to, to help the predictability and projectability of your crop. And it starts when you're cutting those clones. So like Seth said, try and uh, try and be very consistent on the node count that you're cutting from. Uh, if you can get started there well, then you're going to be ahead of time uh, in the quality and the weight of your crop. Uh, it's going to make it way easier for your sales team to know when they're, they're getting the, the right product. And one of the things that I like to do with the the clone racks is, is take some weights for water content. Obviously the Terrace 12 is a little bit too large to be using in a, a clone cube and those, those cloning type substrates. And so use your kitchen scale uh, and try and get a, a weight, Uh, water content of that and and let them dry down so most of the time you're not going to want to be irrigating those plants every day they're going to have a very low transpiration rate and you're going to want to wait until that water content drops significantly before you rehydrate
1: yeah and then you know beyond that you're going to want to very very lightly hydrate and make sure you don't leave any standing water in those trays i mean you know it may be a slight extra expense but the spacer inserts your rock cubes are wonderful. They allow you to move the whole slab of cubes at once. And, uh, you know, really a a big thing is patience when you're trying to get those clones to root, you know, make your cuts good, everything consistent, be patient on your watering. You're not going to wait too terribly long, but like Jason said, if you can start to establish a baseline, all right, we've lost X amount of volume in here, let's water. And usually you want to lose like, you know, in the 15 20. 15 to 20% range, at least on those clones. And then as far as rooting those clones into your four-inch blocks or your Hugo's or your cocoa pot, um, again, patience is key, but probably one of the best tools you can have to get yourself ahead here is a micro drip system. If you've got drip irrigation and you can put on very, very small applications, you know, day two, day three, what we're doing is just giving that plant a little stimulation, a little fresh air and water into the root zone to keep it growing. Because one of the dangers of waiting too, I mean, there's overwatering and underwatering, obviously. If we wait too long to water, we risk running, you know, a pretty anaerobic root zone. We're not getting fresh oxygen in there. That's breeding ground for bacteria. Um, if we overwater too early, uh, we kind of come into the same problem after the block saturated and we can't actually put fresh water in it. We've got to wait for the plant to transpire. So with that drip system, just being able to put on, you know, one to three, 1% shots throughout the day until you start to achieve, you know, a 15% total dryback is the best, best way to go. Yeah. And if we just think about the biology
2: of those roots, they are seeking out water and they're seeking out typically a little bit lower nutrient content. And so when we have those 1% or small irrigations uh, for the first five to seven days after a transplant, it's encouraging those, those roots to, be active, uh, not to get stagnant up in the, the top block with a, with a high water content, and, and really seek out the entire media. We, we want those roots to be taking advantage of all the substrate that, that's being used.
0: Awesome, thank you guys. Um, so we did have a question come in through the chats just now. Um, Michael, did you wanna take yourself off mute and go ahead and ask the guys?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, So um, I um, wanted to ask you guys if you could break down, uh, you know, now that we're past bro science in the industry and into actual science, um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we used to do over assumptions and just trial and error that link to what we're currently doing. Um, Could you guys break down some differences and expound on some of the things that are still in action, like say stress, droughting, becoming what's currently generative steering
2: yeah uh i mean obviously stress drought um as far as hydroponic medias go is is not a a very common thing uh i mean unless you're hitting zero percent water content you know maybe five ten percent in cocoa uh there's available water to those plants and so i think you know probably one of the one of the most ironic correlations between the good old hand watering is we could only hand water once a day typically and uh, in a facility that was very large and uh, by nature that's going to be a more generative type of steering so you know even even accidentally uh, we were controlling plant growth uh, just due to the limitations of irrigation
1: uh, in, in some of the more legacy groves. And, you know, coming into more standardized horticulture and science, you know, just, just defining that, you know, we used to say like, we're really drought stressing that plant. Well, actually we're not, we're not trying to take it to the point where we're putting drought stress on it, i.e. getting close to a wilting point. We're just stretching out that irrigation time. So that would be like a great example of something that, you know, people were doing and now we've just kind of nailed down, like, what is that? Why does it work? Um, If we actually do go for a full drought stress, which would be, you know, something similar to what we'd see in like dry land farming. Uh, we're, we're not getting anywhere near those numbers. We don't want to, that's totally counterintuitive. If we were looking at actual drought stressing, we'd be like, okay, how little can we water this thing and have it still survive? And what we're looking for is, you know, the most growth we can possibly get. So, you know, little differences like that, you know, there's other things that, uh, super cropping is a big one. I think that's pretty fun to do at home. But uh, in a commercial setting, the advantages that it brings up don't usually outweigh how much it costs to go super crop a 5,000 square foot room, especially if yeah, the, you're in a double tier situation. The labor involved with that is insane. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like, you know, everything is relative now when you're, when you're scaling up. I mean, you, all, that, all that love we like to give our plants, we kind of throw some of that out just because we have too many plants to do that too. Yeah. And thinking about labor input, one of the things that people
2: used to do quite a bit was training their plants, um, building, building out as much colas as they could by, by training them, you know, tying, tying the limbs down, et cetera, using some of those old training devices, There's lots of stuff on the market oh, to, yeah. to help people do that. And nowadays, fortunately, the genetic selection is, is so massive that we can usually choose a plant that, uh, that performs how we like just due to, uh, due to its DNA.
1: And, you know, as, as growers, everyone at net right now has the opportunity to help, you know, influence where breeding is going, you know, breeders are trying to put out what growers want and as growers want more, uh, I want to say commercially viable, but easy to grow strains or strains that have certain attributes in terms of, you know, physical structure or watering requirements. Um, you know, we're, we're going to see that more and more being popular. And that's, that's everyone's goal, right? Every breeder wants to make a plant. That's really awesome to smoke, beautiful and easy to grow. And you know, we're, we're, I'll I'll say it again, we're 80 to a hundred years behind a lot of other uh, plant breeding projects in terms of uh, just how much freedom they've had to operate. We're, we're barely dipping into what we're going to be seeing in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of cannabis genetics and what's available out there.
0: That's really exciting. Michael, did that answer your question or do you have a follow-up?
1: No, absolutely. Thank you guys. Thanks, Thanks. Mike. Always good to hear from you.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Thanks you. Good to see you again. Um, yeah, we do have a, another question uh, from Instagram. Uh, Duan Gowan uh, wrote in another question. Uh, Is it okay to adjust feed to combat high or low EC in medium or will lack of fresh newts affect your yield?
2: my favorite way to to modulate irrigation to control ec is just by your runoff percentage for trying to push that ec down a little bit lower maintain it we can have uh, more runoff if we want that ec to to continue to rise then we can just reduce our runoff and so i guess that would be modulating your your irrigation duration of each event typically Um, obviously you could run maybe one or two more p2 events if if you were running bulking and, and trying to Get a little bit more runoff or or keep that ec uh, low as far as getting too far you know i don't think you need to modify your schedule significantly unless it's just just way off from
1: what it should be anyways yeah i mean i think the thing to look at there is no matter what that runoff is going to be modulating our ec in the root zone so when we adjust feed ec we're adjusting we have another variable we have to adjust which is how much runoff we're going to run to get our desired ec so it's a lot easier to play with one variable to get the effect we want than to play with two. And then we don't, you know, I mean if you want a good reason to run 3.0 instead of 4.0, it's 75% as much fertilizer <laughs> that you're going to spend in a run, you know. There are a lot of these things we can mod- modulate um not just saying okay, what's best for the plant, but we can now look at like okay, how can we make this more affordable? How can we be more efficient with our fertilizer and water usage? you know, the, the end goal is uh, at least for me in using technology like this is to really dial in what certain plants need and try to make it as efficient as possible to grow them.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that's made this quite a bit easier as well is just the quality of, of nutrients that are available in the market today. They have a pretty decent balanced composition. If you're going with some of the popular name brands that are out there uh, it's be more consistent than say mixing your own unless you're very well educated in uh, nutrient composition and its effects on the plants and that really helps us from uh, from having to over irrigate just to balance out the nutrient composition in the substrate so if we're feeding what the plant is eating then we know that the balance of nutrients in there is going to stay fairly consistent and that's why we like to watch runoff ph is just to ensure that that is actually happening Uh, And so what that means is we could run, say, a 3.0 in our feed irrigation instead of 4.0 and uh, allow the nutrients to actually build up in the substrate and just take advantage of that rather than than, um, disposing of them as waste or or runoff.
0: Awesome. Thank you guys for that answer. Um, So that is actually the last Instagram question that we had for today. Um, Oh, Jay's writing in. Jay, did you want to take your uh, yourself off mute and go ahead and talk to the guys? Oh, he said he wants to thank you for all the info that we give him. Aw, that's sorry. I'm, I'm like aw. <laughs> that that's directed at you guys. So thanks.
2: <laughs> You're welcome. Um, we yeah, have, we have a lot of fun doing this. Uh, we you know we learned about what uh, information is most helpful for clients. And obviously, we built up a pretty good library in our YouTube just talking about the most popular topics that that people are looking to get answered.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a blast to do every week. Honestly, I, it's, you guys make it enjoyable. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, for real. It's fun. And and I get to learn so much uh, just even being a part of this. So um, yeah, thank you guys. Um, It will, without any other questions, I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's show. Uh, Do you guys want to talk about anything else while we're on the air? Any new developments or anything cool going on? Sorry to
2: put you on the spot. No, it's great. Uh, I mean, we can talk a little bit about some of the projects that that we've been trying to, to, trying to finalize. Uh, Mm -hmm. so one of those would be our generic harvest flow. Uh, all the people that are on our metric integration are used to using our RFID scanners and our skills for an effective, efficient, accurate harvest process and so our generic flow is going to open that up for states that we haven't integrated with metric yet or states that aren't metric integrated and really that's just the last piece in the puzzle of your harvest groups so obviously tracking all the, the input information and and then starting to get an easy way to track the the weights uh, the yields of those plants with our scale is is going to be a exciting thing
1: yeah just just giving people who still you know like jason said aren't integrated with metric or in a metric state uh, the opportunity to use uh, what, you know, we're kind of referring to as, as a touchless harvest system. You know, no more sticky fingerprints on a clipboard with a spreadsheet on it. Now you can just scan it, hang it, move along.
2: Yeah. And, it, you know, it's the the hardware itself is very similar to some of the other systems out there in the industry that, that have been doing this for a while. Obviously, the thing that's nice about this is it's getting everything into one system now. So rather than having your compliance system and your harvesting system and your data systems, we're, we're hoping that it makes life easier just by having a Arroyo and having the, the visibility without uh, translating mentally across all those different programs.
1: Mm-hmm. And then it also takes responsibility off of your shoulders for entering all of your uh, yield data in for Harvest Analytics. Then it's just already in the pr- software. There's no opportunity for you to miss entering a weight and not have some analytic that you want. Now it's just all in there and it's tracked back to the tag. Yeah.
2: And some, I think some of my favorite features of our scale that, that we've built up during the development process is the fact that you can use multiple scales, multiple uh, mm-hmm. computers you're going you're gonna have, you know, if you're trying to get down 1800 plants in a day, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work. And we want to, you know, see that work get spread across three, four, however many
1: people that you can have recording this at once. Yeah, that's been a, a big game changer for some of our clients that are able to utilize that.
0: Thank you. Uh, it's always great to simplify and make things more efficient. Uh, Michael, uh, he said, get into that aqua lab. Uh, you guys want to say anything about that?
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I actually meant when we were talking about mold sensors earlier, I was thinking about the, the aqua lab, uh, obviously not <laughs> uh, uh, a sensor during cultivation that that's going to be great for, for detecting mold, but shooting for the water activity and the time frame that you need to prevent any of that growth. Uh, Aqualab is a great way to document your process and ensure that uh, you have the the highest weight, the highest quality product that you're shooting for during the drying process. And Another thing that's nice is you can just pre-validate your uh, test samples that are going to go out to the lab. So rather than, you know, waiting with your fingers crossed hoping that your your snap test didn't lose too much weight, or or you didn't get to a safely dry point with that product. Run through mm-hmm. your aqua labs, uh, obviously do multiple samples, document that in your systems, and and get an idea of what the best water activity for that strain is. Uh, you know there there are some different arguments as far as what the ideal water activity is. Uh, obviously if i'm rolling up some joints i like to have it a little bit lower than than something fresh and sticky for a bowl just just to to ease of work with uh with that product and i i think what we recommend is was like point six is is what we're shooting yeah, for in just the as a general to
1: point six range yeah you know um and yeah so product application matters the other thing it really allows you to do is stop like you say guessing and losing grams to the air <laughs> you know we can really maximize how much weight we're putting out. And then also by following that product, you know, all the way into the packaging stage, you can double check and make sure. I mean, when we talk about like the whole white ash argument, sometimes that a lot of that has to do with just inconsistency. One batch is going out way too fresh and the one behind it went out bone dry. And that bone dry one's going to burn probably very white <laughs> every time. So nailing that consistent point and ensuring that you have that quality is a huge part of it. I mean, I'll always go back and say we're at a we're at a time right now um, in most places where cannabis is legal at least especially if it has been for a year so when you walk in the store you have a lot of choices and we've there's you know buyers that buy the same brand all the time then there's people like me <laughs> that you know there's I have a few favorites that I like to buy but a lot of times I'll try something new when I go in because their their inventory is all also changing. You know people are growing new strains all the time. The one thing I know as a consumer that's true for me and true for plenty of people I know is a negative experience with a brand is a lot longer lasting in my mind than a positive one because most of the time it's a positive experience. So just ensuring that your customers don't run into that is huge, I think.
2: And as a good practice, you know, it's the same reason that we recommend people use a, a number of substrate sensors in their car room. And and that is to analyze the consistency, the, you know, the uniformity of the, the room at one point in time. You know, based on where you're fans are out where your dehumidifiers are at uh, where other environmental modulation factors are going on in a dry room go across there and, and spatially think about where you're taking those samples and then try to get an idea of hey is this due to the the product that came in you know is it due just to different strains and how they perform in a dry room or is this an, an actual uh is this an actual application where the room itself was uh ending up in a lack of uniformity throughout that product. And sometimes you can go in there and make some easy
1: modifications to how that room performs to to make your life easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can help you make those judgment calls. I was going to say, I was thinking about sometimes I've encountered where we're pulling down the dry room and you find, you know, a few racks that are just packed so densely that they're way behind the rest of the room. And you're like, okay, what happened here? Well, we can start attaching acceptable numbers to everything. It makes it a lot easier to audit that and stay ahead of it. Rather than go, okay, now we've got a whole other logistical issue to think about right now. Whereas a couple days ago, someone pull a, pulling samples might've been able to easily spot this and just fix it then.
0: Awesome discussion, you guys. Um, Michael, did that touch on your question? I know you wanted to talk about ideal moisture and water activity levels. Um, I didn't know if that was uh, exactly what you were uh, asking. Okay. He says that got to it. Um, yeah, that was great, you guys. Thank you. Um Well, cool. Um, If there's no other uh, new stuff in the works or anything that we want to talk about, we can go ahead and wrap up. What do you guys say?
1: Sounds good to me. It's a good day. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Cool. We can start the weekend early. Um, Well, awesome. Well, thank everyone for joining us and Seth and Jason. Thank you guys for another great conversation. Um, Michael, please stick around for a minute so we can uh, collect your contact info and send you an Arroya hat if we haven't done so already. Um, so yeah, thanks, uh, thanks everyone again for joining us for Arroyo Office Hours Live. Uh, got questions about Arroya and how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like to have covered in future Office Hours sessions? Post it in the chat. You can shoot us an email at, at metergroup.com. Or send us an Instagram DM. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we record every session and we emailing everyone in attendance a link from the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like and subscribe while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share with your network and spread the word. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, dudes. Thanks, Mandy. All right. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io.